0: So today we have a wonderful guest. We have Brian Ward. Brian Ward has 30 years in corporate strategy and marketing. His specialties include revenue, generation, research, strategic analysis, process development, and the power of story. Now, Brian Ward is, is helping the service members because he's fed up with this mandate as much as we are, and he's got some, some plan and an idea that he wants to help us work for our benefit. So, uh, Mr. Ward, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us what you can tell us, Brian.
1: Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me here. And I want to thank you for having this podcast. Um, I know you're doing the extra work like everybody else to fight against this mandate that is wholly illegal and unlawful. Um, And so my story involved in all of this is that last year— because I have a number of friends in the Air Force, particularly I live beside Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And they started telling me about the situation and what they are personally going through. And then I saw how the Navy SEALs were being treated in a news report and it just got my blood boiling. And so I decided I would take this up like I would for any other client, a project, and research this issue for myself. And to be honest with you, I thought I would sit down one evening, spend a couple of hours and say, well, there's nothing I can do. However, when I got about, I don't know, five or seven hours into it, a couple of days into the project, I realized that the only drugs available to the American people at large were classified by the FDA as an investigational new drug. And so that piqued my interest. I said, well, what is an IND? Because i never heard of that before. And after that, that journey, that pathway took me down at least 200 hours of research and another two to 300 hours of analysis of that research. Uh, because there are not books, there are not college courses that you can take. There's no one you can call up and say, explain this all to me, because no one knows. So before I give you a mini TED Talk, I would like to say a couple of things. Uh, number one... At no time am I being critical of any attorney out there. So if I say something to the effect that this has not been argued in the court of law, I don't want anybody to take that as criticism because I am so thankful for all of the attorneys who are fighting on behalf of this issue right now because there are so many attorneys who refuse to participate. Number two, if I were to ask 50,000 attorneys in America, when was the last time you represented a client that involved laws titled the protection of human subjects they would look at me with a blank face and say i don't know what you're talking about never Um, so the last time that i found a case involving this issue before this pandemic was in 2004. before that i had to go all the way to the late 1970s so is it's an exceptional rarity that we find ourselves in relating to the laws at hand and i believe it's this lack of understanding that the those who wanted to subject all of us to a bi- biomedical research project knew up front, and so they have sown seeds of confusion into society. So my desire here, Dr. Sigalov, is specifically to help shed light on that confusion so that we'll have an understanding of the laws that provide us protections to say no. So, um, an investigational new drug is defined by the government as a substance that has been tested in the laboratory and authorized by the FDA to test in you, (laughs) otherwise known as an experimental drug. And all investigational new drugs, as they're called, these COVID-19 vaccine drugs are all classified by the FDA as INDs. They operate under a body of laws titled the Protection of Human Subjects. Now these body of laws they're in the federal government they're in all 20 uh, federal agencies they are in all 50 states and all 50 health departments furthermore there's an organization within HHS called the office of human research protections they have a program called federal wide assurance program they literally have tangible contracts with untold thousands of entities both public and private who promised to abide by these laws when involving humans in medical experimentation. So when I say medical experimentation, I don't mean the way we used to think about it in the 1940s, you know, where you're held under a knife against your will. I'm talking about where you voluntarily, out of your free will, consent to participate in a clinical research trial or to participate in a COVID-19 investigational new drug. Those are one and the same. So, before 1974, most people will be shocked to learn that during the Nuremberg Trials, Nazi scientists actually used research conducted by Americans on Americans as their defense. I'll just give you a couple of those examples so that you'll understand why we have these laws in place to date. Uh, The U.S. Navy flew over San Francisco back in the 1950s, and they sprayed the entire city with a bacterial agent just to see what would happen. Uh, In Georgia, they dropped over 300,000 mosquitoes onto an unsuspecting population just to see if they could use mosquitoes in a warfare event. Uh, The U.S. Army injected prostitutes with STDs without their knowledge to see how STDs spread throughout populations. And the list goes on and on and on. Um, Unfortunately, these aren't rare events. You know, in one event at a prison, they brought in 300 female prisoners and they injected them with live cancer cells, without their knowledge and their or their consent, just to see what would happen. So in 1974, Congress got an earful of the American public, and they passed what is known as the National Research Act. This act required a commission to be established to, number one, define the ethical guidelines um, when involving humans in medical experimentation. And number two, this was a very specific request. They needed to consider the nature and definition of informed consent. And it's this informed consent of which all of my research centers around because this is where we're gonna have our victory and it will be very quick like. So out of this um, commission, they released a report called the Belmont Report. The Belmont Report came out, I believe in April of 1978. And the Belmont Report has been codified Into federal statute. It has the force of law. Furthermore, out of the Belmont report came all of these regulations. 45 CFR 46 by the HHS is the fundamental primary regulations governing um, the use of experimental drugs or experimental medical products in human beings, and it is known as the Common Rule. And it's this Common Rule that has uh, been adopted by the entire nation. So the Belmont report defined the, uh, the aspect of informed consent. Now what I love about the Belmont Report compared to the Helsinki Declaration or the Nuremberg Code, which are other two other documents relating to um, bioethics, I like the fact that what they tried to accomplish in the Belmont Report wasn't to have a set of rules. It was to have a set of philosophical conversations that could be applied even 300 years from now when we as humans can't understand what developments might take place. And so that was their goal. It wasn't to say we have these concrete rules that must be followed. It's these are these concrete philosophies that you need to apply to every aspect of research when involving human beings. So even though the report goes into a lot of things, let's discuss informed consent. Now, Since that time, and I'm going to define it for you in a moment, but since that time, courts have rearranged that phrase. We no longer say informed consent in courts and in the government regulations. They literally state legally effective informed consent. In fact, HHS says that informed consent must be legally effective and prospective, which means in advance. So the Belmont Report said, number one, that... Um, as it relates to informed consent, you must be made aware of the drug that you're going to be taking, the medical product. Number two, its risk and associated benefits, if any of the two. Number three, you must be given an opportunity to consider whether or not to participate in that medical product. Number four, now at this point, everybody in America believes that what I, the first three points is what informed consent means, and they stop there. And so number four, Dr. Sigalov, has never, ever, one time, to my knowledge, been argued in a court of law since it was established in 1978. And this is where the confusion has entered into the American marketplace. Number four, that when you agree to consent, the authority that's, that's providing you access to these drugs, they must create a, quote, set of adequate conditions, in quote, in order for you to give your consent. In other words, you can't just say, yes, I'll take Pfizer's BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine drug. They must ensure that there's a legally improve, approved environment when you give your yes. What is that environment? That you, they must ensure that you, the individual, that you're not under a, quote, sanction, quote, coercion, quote, undue influence to participate in that experimental product. Now obviously this is not the current vaccine mandate status right So in other words we can reverse it if you are under a mandate that will penalize you for not for not participating in an experimental product then that mandate is illegal therefore all of the mandates to date that have relied solely on the use of investigational new drugs have violated a federal um federal laws the laws of all 50 states, and a ratified international treaty by the United States Senate. No American, as the law states in 45 CFR 46, quote, may incur a penalty or lose a benefit to which they are otherwise entitled, end quote, when refusing to participate in an emergency use authorized medical product because it is labeled as an investigational new drug. So this Belmont report is so deep in federal law that in in the regulatory agencies, for example, I'll just run off a couple of few to you. 45 CFR 46 is HHS's. It states that all federal department heads and agencies and the military will abide by the ethical guidelines of the Belmont Report. If they exempt any research activity from this particular policy, then those alternative activities must abide by the ethical guidelines of the Belmont Report. Now you can ask 50,000 attorneys, have you heard of the Belmont Report? Maybe 10% of them say yes, but if you ask them if they have read it, might one of them will say yes. So the American people, the legal community at large, they don't understand the importance of this publication, how it has the force of law, and how it applies to current COVID-19 vaccine mandates. For example, in the military, um, the Assistant Secretary of Health, she is the one who first authorizes the use of an emergency use um, product in the DOD. Once she authorizes the use, then it goes to the Undersecretary of Defense Personnel Readiness, I think it is. You know, y'all have so many titles, it's so hard for me to keep up with. Uh, but for Personnel Readiness and the Undersecretary of Defense, this person, this office, is responsible for the implementation and legal obligations of the product. From there, it goes to the Secretary of the Army, and the Secretary of the Army is the lead component for the DOD overseeing all EUA products. However, this, the Surgeon General for the Army acts as what is known as the Institutional Review Board for the EUA product. And this office is responsible for making sure that the drug is safe, effective and abides by FDA regulations. In those regulations governing the process, um, it literally states that if it is exempted, if a EUA product is exempted from these particular regulations, and I will tell you that they are, for example, all EUA products are exempted from 32 CFR 219, which are the military regulations for the protection of human subjects, it states in plain language that even though it's exempted from these regulations, that the activity surrounding this product must abide by the ethical guidelines of the Belmont Report. So the Belmont Report, you can't get away from. It's just no one knows about it because it has never, ever seen the inside of a courtroom. And so my research um, it didn't start out like most people's research did. Most people started re- researching, you know, regulations. I went all the way back, Dr. Sigalov, to 1905 America when the FDA was first created. And I started walking my way through legislative history to understand why we needed these legislative laws, who was responsible for what, how were they responsible, and what rights were we protected from or afforded. So what I'd like to do is probably just go through a couple of subject items here relating to all of the court cases that I have read um, to help shed some further light on these issues. Because the number one question I get from people is, Brian, if you're right, then how come we haven't won in a court of law yet? Well, number one, none of this has ever been argued in a court of law, um, and so they don't know how to apply it to these other related issues. So let's talk about the issue of interchangeability. So we know that the Department of Justice and the DoD that they argue two things primarily. Number one, because Pfizer's experimental drug has an approved drug, then they can use it and mandate it uh, because they're chemically the same. Which we know by now that they're not, but. That's for a different conversation. Number two, they say because the product was, was authorized under an emergency use authorization, um, it does not apply to these other regulations that protect human subjects when involved in experimental products. So my desire, my 30 years of experience is how do we apply a principle in a story to help people understand? Um, because there's an argument to the left and to the right right now, which has not been argued in the court of law. And that is this. Let's take Pfizer's two drugs for a moment. We have the experimental product and we have the approved product. The approved product has never been shipped. We have two drugs, two different drug labels, and listen to this, two different sets of laws that govern those two drug labels. This has never been argued in the court of law, in the current COVID-19 mandates. So, When you go in to take a uh, a, a Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 shot, the healthcare provider is obligated by law to administer that shot to you according to the scope of authorization as outlined in the EUA. If another person comes into the doctor's office and they take the Comirnaty shot again, I know it's not available. Conversation only. They are under no such obligations to abide by the scope of authorization even though, quote unquote, it has the same formula. Why? Because of the drug labels. So think about this. Think about the, the the judicial nightmare that has been created in our country that's about to be unleashed. A person who goes into the doctor's office and they take an experimental product where they are volunteering for a biomedical research project and they are volunteering to forfeit all litigation rights in the future whether they realize it or not, they believe that the product is approved because that's the way it has been presented to them. Therefore, let's say, as an example, they become injured as a result of using the product. They show up in a court of law and they say, Your Honor, I was told it was, quote-unquote, as if the same product, and I believe I should be able to use the laws that govern Nati because I was told it was the same. Well, Pfizer will immediately say, well, absolutely not. We didn't ship Comirnaty. We ship BioNTech-19. It has an experimental product, and we expect the laws that govern this product to be utilized in this court. You see, at this moment, we have a judicial nightmare. So if the court, obviously at that point, would immediately say, yes, Pfizer, we agree with you. We're going to use those laws. Well, now the plaintiff has been injured twice because they were convinced up front this was an approved product, an approved drug. So if the courts are obligated in the future case of this sense to abide by the laws that govern the label of Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19, then it only stands to reason that they are obligated to abide by the laws that govern BioNTech COVID-19 drug now in the COVID mandate. And what does a mandate say? What does the law say specifically about experimental products? That no one is allowed to exempt themselves from obtaining the legally effective informed consent of the individual before the product's administration. There are only two instances, Dr. Sigalov, that I'm aware of in nine months of research where informed consent is allowed to be exempted. Number one in the Department of Defense If the Secretary of Defense makes a request, and there's a huge process for that to take place, the President may issue an informed consent, but only within a limited capacity. Number two, in the civilian world, and in a a DOD world as well, let's say for a moment, Dr. Sigalov, that a patient comes into your office, and they are in a life and death situation, they are unconscious, and they do not have a legal representative in your office. At that moment, if you look over at a medical product that has not been approved by the FDA and you look at the patient who's going to be dying momentarily and you believe that that product can save that patient's life, there is a law that affords you the opportunity to bypass the informed consent process to administer that medical product to that patient. But imagine how rare of an instance that actually occurs. So apart from those two events, I don't know of another mechanism that allows anyone to exempt themselves from the informed consent process. So therefore even if you go get your toenails painted in a lot of places they require your informed consent. You can't get your tonsils removed without informed consent. You know, um, there are There are vitamins that require informed consent, and now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because a drug shares the same formula as another drug, that we magically say we have the right to bypass informed consent requirements. Therefore, a question that I wish would be asked in a court that I haven't seen it asked yet would be simply this. Your Honor, could you please ask the defendant to provide us with the statute that they are utilizing? that affords them the right to exempt themselves from the laws that govern the label of Pfizer's BioNTech (laughs) COVID-19. We would put this to rest quick like, but no one has asked that question. And to me, it's a very honest question, you know, basic law 101. And so the department of justice, when they wrote a document in August of 2021, affirming the right of governments, to mandate the use of EUA products. I have read that document several times. I have written about it. I have um, sent a rebuttal on it. Here's what they did not do. Nowhere in that entire document do they talk about the laws that govern labels attached to experimental products. It's as if, poof, they don't even exist. So, there is an international treaty titled the Political Rights Treaty. It was ratified by the United States Senate in 1992 and Article 7 of that treaty stipulates that no person may be subjected to to medical or scientific experimentation without their free will or their free consent, it says. Now, the word subjected there does not mean physical force. It means under the legal authority of your government. And so about 170 nations have signed on to this, including Canada, (laughs) who is right now subjecting their citizens to participate in a biomedical product or scientific experimentation. And so uh, lastly, let me just talk about Section 564. Uh, This is a section of law that allows people to, um, or allows the government, the Secretary of HHS to approve a product that's unapproved during a declared emergency. So what is the history on this? Well, it came out of a 2004 effort by Congress called Project BioShield. When it was first created, it was during the scare of weapons of mass direction, destruction coming into America. And the idea was this. If there is a CBRN event, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear event, and there are mass casualties occurring, and there is a product that exists that the doctors on the field believes could save these people's lives, there needed to be a process in place that could expedite the approval, uh, approved use of that product during a declared emergency because most drugs take years to be approved, right? And there are laws that prevent the distribution into interstate commerce, those products. So Congress got together, they passed section 564, and here's the thing to understand. Section 564 does not create a new category, as defendant lawyers are arguing. They are actually in court right now saying that these are EUA products. There is no such thing as an EUA product. What it does is un- it's under a section of law titled expanded access. So in Section 564, this is expanded emergency use access. So what this law does for the American people It provides them a mechanism, a process where they can have access to drugs that normally is not available to them during a declared emergency. And the secretary must only have belief that the product, quote, may have benefit, end quote. And these products enjoy 100% shielded uh, immunity from litigation and lawsuits from the end users. And that's through the PREP Act, and it's through some other laws. However, when you study the PREP Act and these other laws, it clearly stipulates that the entire program operates under, quote, a voluntariness, end quote, nature of everyone involved, from the end user to all of the stakeholders. So Section 564, the only claim Congress makes is that the secretary can approve a product that's not approved for its intended use during a, um, uh, an emergency declaration. Number one, it must provide information to the end user. And number two, it must provide the end user with the option of, uh, to consider whether or not to accept or refuse the product, period. Now, a lot of people are arguing that Section 564 exempts, does not require informed consent. That is a factual lie. You can read it all day long. What does it say? Before the informed part, it says, when practical. So remember, we're talking about a WMD event. So imagine in Chicago, there's 150,000 people seeking medical help. It honestly may not be practical to sit down with every single person and tell them the informed part of Section 564, right? However, at no time does it exempt itself from the effective consent part, because that's always 100% practical. To always allow the people in your city to have the right to reject the product or to accept it requires no energy, no effort, no money, and no time, and it doesn't get away of anything that's taken place in your city. You come in, do you want the product? Yes, no, okay, here you go. And because if it did, it would violate that international treaty, it would violate every single bioethics law that's in existence in America today. And that's why Congress said you have the option to accept or refuse. And this word option denotes a right. A right that cannot be infringed upon. And this is the last thing I'll talk about then I'm going to allow you to ask questions because I could go on forever. And this really concerns me. I mean on a major level this concerns me because no one has thought about the legal ramification of what's taking place in our courts today. If we have a right that we have given ourselves through our representatives in Congress, if that right can be penalized by a person in authority who disagrees with our choice, then number one, that is not a right. Then number two, the court precedent that's being established in the, in the judiciary today is that all other rights may be penalized that we enjoy. And no one, this is a constitutional argument. And no one has actually spent time talking about how, uh, on one hand, the DOJ saying, yes, you have the right to refuse, but you may be penalized if you make that choice. Well, Dr. Sigalov, if the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States still has the force of law in America, if Google can fire employees for not participating in Pfizer's biomedical research project, then another company can fire an employee who did participate. The biomedical research projects. If these rights can be penalized, then none of us are safe to exercise any of them at any given time. And so this is a significant legal development that we really need to get on top of beyond the overall issue at hand. So with that, I feel like I'm talking too long here and I'm going to uh, let you uh, chime in for a moment.
0: Well, I do want to I want to comment on a couple things you said, because I think they're they're just wonderful the way you said them. And I just want to further those points. So you had mentioned that um, you go into this thing voluntarily and then you're going to lose your rights for any sort of suit against whoever produced it or whoever made it. Whatever doc said it was safe and effective, which is an absolute lie uh, made out of thin air, whole cloth, uh, because there is a case in France where there's a man who took one of these shots and his he died, his family went to court and they were suing the their life insurance policy giver because the life insurance refused to give it. And the court at the end of the case said it was as if that man committed suicide because he joined into an investigational new drug research program that's as dangerous as jumping out of an airplane. It's as if he committed suicide mm-hmm. legally. And so the family did not get any payout. And which means like, Hopefully, health insurance will pay for this stuff, but they have no legal right or obligation to pay because you entered in a dangerous investigational study, and I hope that anyone that hasn't done it does not join. Anyone that already has joined doesn't do any more um, shots of this experiment. Uh, you would also mention uh, some other rights. So, like, we are to be safe in, in our um, personal effects. Well, isn't my body my most personal effect? And then you also had mentioned if we don't have the right to say no, then, and this is a, an argument, and I have to be careful the way I word this, that, that Todd Callender has brought up. And I can't say where he's brought it up because I'm in the military, I'm active duty, I can't say specifically if you know who Todd Calendar is, great, if you don't go look him up, learn about him. He talks about the 13th Amendment and how he brought that into an argument that he is discussing. And what he's saying is, I have a right to say no. If I don't have the right to say no, then I'm not sovereign over my body and I'm a slave and his argument is even more so that yes if, i've
1: heard that i've heard that argument before
0: and his argument is even more so that if you take biontech and it does have crispr in it like he shows that it does go look back at my biowarfare episode now you've changed someone's dna potentially and whoever owns the patent to that that change owns you which is a 13th amendment issue
1: Yeah, well, that's an interesting um, analogy. And um, someone told me about this last week, and um, it ran through my brain. But to be honest with you, I'm so uh, knee deep in this research and having to push it out.
0: And a good um, analogy because of the. Yeah, sorry, sorry. A good analogy for it is Monsanto. Most people are familiar with Monsanto and how they genetically modified, changed the DNA of some plants. And let's say a farmer has it in his field, and it blows across to another farmer's field. And let's say that farmer, they found a little genetic information in the corn that he sells, and it happens to be Monsanto's genetic information. They can sue that farmer for patent infringement, copyright infringement.
1: Well, that's already happened.
0: And I mean, and so now those same, legally, I don't, I mean, logically, that same law would apply to humans if someone changed let's say my DNA, they would own my DNA because it is no longer natural DNA. And that is the argument. Yeah. Years, the ago, there was, to make uh,
1: yeah, years ago, there was one farmer that had one, one plant of Monsanto in his farm, a uh, field, and he was successfully sued by all the way to the Supreme court. Now I believe the current Supreme court would reject that. I hope so. um, you know, uh, obviously we don't have any, we don't have any uh, authority over the birds. who's going to carry the seeds wherever they want to carry them. Right. <clears throat> So what I would like to do, I think, is because a lot of, the, a lot of your viewers are military, obviously, um, I would like to speak specific to DOD. Uh, because what makes, you know, all of the laws that I haven't covered so far, and there are just a lot of them, um, put in, putting these pieces together is simply this, is that they apply to both civilian and to um, military. Um, everyone has the fundamental right to opt out of an investigational drug and, quote, may not incur a penalty. Or lose a benefit to which they were otherwise entitled, end quote. <laughs> That's the law that has never been argued. Um, and the primary reason it hasn't been argued is because people don't understand the connections between an EUA product, the Institutional Review Board, and 45 CFR 46. So they show up in court and the, and the defendant lawyers can just say whatever. And the plaintiff lawyers Um, because they don't have 500 hours of time to put in the knee-deep research to make it happen, Um, and they don't understand the connections, and so um, it's overruled fairly quickly. So, But with the DOD, because they have regulations, the Department of Defense has the strongest protection of human subject laws in the entire nation, and they're being wholly violated right now. So just a couple of things. I don't want to rehash probably items that I know everybody has heard about before But
0: um, I, I would stop you there I would, just, the, I would there's a lot of people who listen and watch this who who are new to the fight and don't know a thing So yeah, I mean if there's something you can cover okay. quick that might be helpful because there are people like yes. I've talked to someone recently who'd never heard of ivermectin and it's like hey, At this point, how do you not hear about ivermectin? Right, but it's just everybody's well, uh, in their own what, little, little place in this this fight.
1: Yes, I understand when it comes to the Department of Defense, the primary uh, DoD instructions that involve the EUA products or IND products um, go to 6200.02. And there were more regulations than just this, but this is a primary one specific to EUA products. And so let me just read you something that the FDA told the DOD in 2005. They said, quote, refusal to participate in an investigational drug, and that's in brackets, may not be grounds for any disciplinary action under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Refusal may not be grounds for any adverse personnel action. Now, the the, the FDA was talking about the anthrax drug at that point, but it wasn't the drug's name or the drug's formula the reason they said it. It was because of how the drug was classified as an investigational drug. Um, Judge Sullivan ruled in 2004, quote, Congress has prohibited the administration of investigational drugs to service members without their consent. This court will not permit the government to circumvent this requirement, end quote. Now, uh, one that a lot of people are unaware of is that when, um, after this ruling came out, and after the rights were reaffirmed by courts, Um, not military courts, by the way, it was civil courts, the FDA issued another EUA for anthrax drug and listened to what they said as a statement to service members. Quote, you may refuse uh, anthrax vaccination under the EUA and you will not be punished. No disciplinary action or adverse personnel action will be taken. You will not be processed for separation and you will still be deployable. There will be no penalty or loss of entitlement for refusing anthrax vaccination, end so, quote.
0: So what's interesting about that is um, I got to s- sit down with a man who lives down the street from me, Doe, from Rumsfeld versus Doe. Yeah, know, I spoke he, to him too. Yeah, amazing <laughs> man. And I, I, I need to get him on is what I need to do and tell us, have him tell us how he made it through that fight. And, and Dale Saran, I need to get him on as well. Um, amazing men to talk to. But they were the ones that made that fight that, that, that protected them back then. And now, um, because they put those laws in effect, we have protection now. The protection, the problem is the protection is not being followed. And, and this, right. is an, this is an issue that I've, I'm seeing, and, and we've seen this in history before. Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson was told by the court system, you cannot remove the natives from their land. And Andrew Jackson said, well, then stop me. And that's pretty much where we are. So we have to figure out a way to, to get the public involved, so there's so much public outcry, so that the public, we the people, because government is all of the people in the United States, they have such an outcry that they demand that the laws be followed, and that the court system follow these laws, because I will assure if there's any judge listening right now, I assure you there's been coercion from top to bottom. Before this even came out, as it may be, we may need to take it, there was commanders saying, well, it's not mandatory yet. That's coercion. I've had first sergeants, it's not mandatory yet. I've had hospital commanders, it's not mandatory yet. And every time I would stop them and say, sir, ma'am, to say that is coercive. You should not say that because that is, that's not right. And it it can cause legal problems in the future.
1: Well, absolutely. And so, you know, over the last week, what I have done uh, specifically is to understand the chain of command as it relates to EUA products. Who's responsible for what? Who do we blame? Who do we serve up to Congress and say this is the person responsible? And so it's actually a lot of people. First of all, it starts with the Assistant Secretary of Health, who at the time was Dr. Terry Adderham, who issued an, an illegal statement.
0: I, she I mean, said, "You will." I need you a quick shout out to Nick. Uh, thank you, Nick, for getting Terry to say all the things she said. I, I love you. I think you're a great man. Keep doing it. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, she said you will, quote-unquote, use this experimental product as if it's an approved product. And I'm paraphrasing there, but that's the spot on what she said. The reason that's illegal is because the only person with the authority to say that is the president of the United States, and he has to do it through a presidential waiver. And there's an entire process uh, that's four pages long that they have to go through in order to even issue that waiver, and that waiver can't be global-wide.
0: Right. There, it's specific there limitations to a very to unique— combat situations, yes. to wherever that exactly. medication needs to be used, that's where it's limited to.
1: So she makes the request, and then it goes to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel, um, and then from there it goes to the Secretary of Army, um, who is the lead component, and then the Surgeon General must approve it. Once all of those get together, and they've come up with the protocols, they've ensured that the database is ready to accept adverse reactions, and, and the Surgeon General has a efficacy tracking system in place because he's required to then it goes to all of the heads of DOD components they can request it once they request it then there's an entire body of regulations of what they are obligated to follow number one they are obligated to ensure that no service member um, is under a mandate number one uh, literally by law Number two, that they must ensure that their leaders they they must provide training. The regulation states to their leadership about the informed consent process requirement
0: hasn't happened. Number three, guarantee. they must
1: ensure that they abide by. It. Say that again.
0: It has not happened. I have received no training.
1: Well, yes, exactly. Obviously, because um, the opposite is occurring. Right. Um. Number one of the things that I found in the regulations that was really stunning to me is that number one, it states the, the following: there are only two ways that the DoD can know the the Assistant Health Secretary and all of these components who are involved in EUA products. There are only two ways that they can know whether or not it requires the informed consent of the service member and/or requires the presidential waiver. Number one, regulations in black and white state the following: that the product has not been approved for its intended use according to its labeling not according to its formula but according to its labeling or this is really going to shock you i just discovered this 24 hours ago so it's fresh off the press the product requires the issuance of an eua to be administered to service members in other words if it's not approved or it requires an eua it requires your legally effective informed consent, and in order for that to be waived, it requires the action of the president. There are no other mechanisms in place for us to determine whether or not a product requires your informed consent or not other than its label. And and if you go deep into the law, which I'm not going to do on you right now, it says that is determined by HHS. That is not determined by the, um, the military. So when the HHS issues a drug, It immediately goes into a classification, and once it receives IND status, it requires your legally effective informed consent. The other thing that was interesting to me that I discovered, it states in plain language that even if the president um, grants a waiver, DOD may not um, waive the informed consent rights of civilian employees or emergency personnel or defense contractors who are with commandant uh, commanders and with the armed forces in field of combat. <laughs> so um, it shows you how strong these informed consent requirements are within our society that even those who work with the military um, on the civilian side, that they don't even lose their rights even if the president grants a waiver. And so that has not been demonstrated in a court of law either. And so the crux I would say, is this. Um, and today is... July the 2nd, when we're recording this, on July the 4th, I'm so excited. I'm going to be releasing a document that's going to have all of this embodied in it. It's a document that you can give to your elected representative, to your state attorneys general, um, that will have significant impacts because for the first time, people will read about the Belmont Report. For the first time, so the the document is broken up in the first half, all about the history and the laws that apply to everybody, In the second half, I go very deep for DOD. I'm going to fight for you. We're going to get your rights, and I believe with all of my with my whole heart, because this has never been argued in a court of law. A judge will have no obligation, but to say you can't penalize a service member who refuses the administration of a product because you can you could penalize a service member if they refuse to take an approved product. That has history, unfortunately. I mean, you sign up for that when you join the military. You know these vaccines are coming your way. But this document that's going to be released will have all of this information in it um, at covidpenalty.com. And the purpose of it is that a lot of people are saying, Brian, give me something I can fight with. Give me something I can take to my representatives. And so um, the hard part of all of this, these laws, Dr. Sigalov, is this. A lot of it, I can't just say, go to statute 34 CFR 219.1, paragraph A. (laughs) I just can't. You have to understand the connections, the the regulatory environment and the framework. And so there's a lot of connections that when you read a law, you understand you're reading underneath a framework that exists over here. And so it's these connections that makes it hard to uh, disseminate to someone uh, on paper or verbally but it makes perfect sense to an attorney. And so an attorney understands this and a court understands this. And so my entire research, my entire premise from the start has been totally different from what everybody else is arguing. So when we walk into a court of law with my research, we're not arguing whether or not vaccine mandates are legal. We're not arguing the drug efficacy or safety. We're not arguing drug uh, natural immunity. We're not arguing any exemption, medical or religious. What are we arguing? A simple fact that we want to focus the judges' attention on is simply this. Your Honor, does the United States military have the authority to exempt itself from the requirements to provide service members with an opportunity to refuse or accept the product? And if they refuse it, what law allows them to penalize that service member or withhold a benefit from them?
0: It's something you said, And either- so we won't... Something you said earlier that's even a bigger conflict of interest that I noticed is you said the Internal Review Board, the IRB, is headed by the Army Surgeon General. The Army Surgeon General is in charge of the IRB.
1: The Army Surgeon General and... Hang on, let me find it, because you know, you people in the military, you got these acronyms for everything, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a totally different language. It's a long
1: name. Yes, it is. So, okay, so it is... Uh, the Surgeon General and the Human Subjects Research Review Board and they must abide by the regulations found in quote, institutional review board policies and procedures reflecting 2018 common rule requirements. Now the reason it says 2018 is not just a date but in 2018 the common rule which is 45 CFR 46 had a major update. So everywhere you look in law right now, it says pre-2018 and after 2018. So that's why that date is there.
0: Is there anything else that we need to discuss?
1: Um, I don't think so. I, well, you know, listen, I could go for another two hours with you, but we'll everybody. wear your, your yeah. listeners' ears out, right? Yeah. Um, I would just encourage people on, you know, come July 5th at the absolute latest, go to COVIDPenalty.com, grab that document, um, look it over, read it, become informed, educated. And, And here's what I can tell you, that the heads of DOD components, they are the ones primarily responsible for this chaos. And when I say that, I mean, they are legally obligated, according to federal law and military regulations, to ensure that service members are not under duress to participate in experimental products. They must ensure that if you opt out, that you may not incur a penalty or lose a benefit. The second person who is most specifically legally responsible is not the Secretary of the Army, but the second, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel Readiness. This is the person who issues guidance to everybody else. Now, once that guidance is issued, the Secretary of the Army becomes the action person um, to make it all happen. But as the Undersecretary of Defense, uh, it has the legal obligation to ensure that military regulations are followed, and they have the legal obligation to ensure that all of the other DOD components are following that law. And the reason this is important to understand who's in charge of what is that when you understand the office, then you can go and look at the authority that the office has and the regulations that they have to abide by. So it gives us additional information. Number two, and this is the most important part. When we go to Congress, and I'm talking to members of the Armed Services Committee, I can say, here's the person. Here's the person responsible for this mess. And and here's the people's roles, and here's what they have not done. And this is why, listen to this, Dr. Sigalov. It's not just the people who are being penalized who have a right to go to court. It's every single service member in the United States military. Why? Military regulations explicitly stipulate that they are required by law to obtain your legally effective informed consent and he uses that exact phrase in advance of you being administered an eua product number two they're required by law to train healthcare providers of these laws whether they're in the military or in the local community um, if they're going to be paying for the shot that you're receiving and so um, because these regulations have been violated and the 14th Amendment's rights, the federally protected rights, every single service member who would show up in a court of law and say, Your Honor, I did not want to take this drug. I was under duress. I was coerced. I was harassed. I was fearing for my financial life, for my dreams, and for my insurance, for my health, until I took it, but I did not want to. That individual, in my personal belief, would have the right to seek judicial remedy in a civil court. Now, what would that remedy be? I have no idea because you can't take the drug back out of them. Most likely would have to be a financial remedy, and that's very difficult to achieve. But I believe a class action lawsuit could bring about that kind of um, instance because, and, and I'll quit because this stuff just keeps coming out of my head, right? In 2020, in the NDAA, they actually changed medical malpractice laws for the military. So before 2020, you, the service member, could never sue for medical malpractice. called the Ferris Doctrine. Now, after 2020, very, very specific set of rules, okay? You can now sue the military for medical malpractice. And it's important and that they did already, that
0: because, trust me, there are very bad doctors in the military. There's very great, great doctors. And now the mask has come off, and we've seen so many that have lied to us. And well, they need to be held personally see. responsible. You just go to the
1: Veterans Administration you look no further, right? But I contend, and I want to see this I want to see this like research and development I want to see this tested in the waters I contend that a person who is injured by a vaccine because they were not required to take it, but they were coerced into it, that that is medical malpractice.
0: Yes, 100% 100% I agree wholeheartedly, and in fact I have a screenshot from a doctor that said it will be malpractice in the future if you don't Push these shots. That's malpractice. That's a problem. And wow. And it's it's striking. And this is an active duty military doctor. And I have a screenshot of this. Um, one thing that I want to add to what you've said too is you know you mentioned specific people that are responsible, but there's a lot more specific people that are responsible if we ever go to let's say a Nuremberg 2.0 type trial where we take people on a world right. stage and we judge them. Did you do this harmful thing to humanity? and i guarantee you if you're a commander you need to listen and listen well and if you've been going down this road that everyone else has been going down i please heed my warning change your direction immediately because you will go before that trial i guarantee it and I, I, i will do my best to ensure it because you've hurt my friends you've hurt my friend pete chambers you've hurt my friends over at terminal cwo you've hurt my friends all over the nation and you've left our nation unprotected, and it will happen to you. So change your direction now, or you will be at trial, just like those doctors that were at trial at Nuremberg.
1: Well, I would like to close with two things. Number one, um, I can't tell you, dozens upon dozens upon dozens of locations in military regulations, specific military regulations, it requires the legally effective informed consent And it always is right beside the idea that if you don't, then it has to operate under 1107 presidential waiver. So it tells you that you have to get the consent. And the only reason why you don't have to get this consent is a presidential waiver. And it is throughout military regulations. Number two, um, my efforts stand beyond legal. Um, I've been involved in corporate strategy and marketing for so long, I sat down and I said, listen, we have to make it administrative. We have to make it marketing. I'm starting to write an article twice a week that I'm pushing out to the nation. Um, Number two, I'm going to the armed services committee members, not all of them because a lot of them don't care, right? And I know who they are. But the ones who do care, I'm saying, listen, in the military, if a service member um, gets a LOR, letter of reprimand, then an un, uh, unfavorable information file is started on them. I said, it's time that we start a UIF on our commanders because they're going to be coming before you for promotions in the future. And we need to have a mechanism in place where we're going to say, listen, <laughs> this person did not follow the law. He, his actions led to the maltreatment of those underneath him, and he should not be promoted. And so that 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 uh, parameter must come outside of the military. And so by doing this, I believe we'll apply administrative pressure from the outside. Because if this becomes public, if I'm successful and this becomes public, I'm telling you right now, that lieutenant, that captain, that major, that, that colonel, they're going to be thinking twice about this issue overnight. And they're going to start asking, okay, what exactly is the law? Right now, under the current administration, they are allowing themselves the freedom to just do whatever. But there will be future administrations. There are going to be future Congresses, um, uh, you know, elected uh, members who will take a closer look at this situation, I assure you. And lastly, the thing that I'm asking, and it won't happen before November. um, If we, you know, if a certain election takes place in November, which I believe it will, I believe with my whole heart we can ask and obtain um, a special prosecutor from the House of Representatives to investigate this fiasco within the DoD, and and we have to apply pressure outside of legal. We can't just the worst thing that would happen, in my opinion, would be for a court to say yes, you can have all your religious exemptions, and it shuts down. No, we need to have a, a court date on whether or not you can force an experimental drug on someone. Then number two, because of Doe and Rumsfeld, I studied that case. I looked at the uh, the remedies. We need to be smart about the remedies we're asking for. We can't expect the DOD to just do the right thing. So to this day, even though that was, what, 20 years ago? Uh, it's been a long time. Do you know they're still? he's still fighting to have the records cleared of those members who refused the administration of that product, even though the court ruled that uh, DOD was wrong? So we must be smart about the remedies we're requesting, um, and we're going to— make sure that the uh, Department of Defense clear records within 30 days and to delete OLORs and to delete uh, UIFs and those sort of things because we don't, number one, we can't rely on DOD, to be honest. And number two, we must fix this quickly. So, you know, and the last thing, this is just a word of encouragement. Uh, I had launched about a week ago live with COVIDpenalty.com for the specific purpose of fighting for the American people with an angle on the DOD service members. Listen, you're in a marathon right now. You're not in a sprint, number one. Number two, don't project your life six months in advance without a job. Six months in advance without a paycheck. Don't allow yourself under that level of stress today. You know, a good pastor friend of mine always said, Brian, don't pay interest on something that's not due yet. And so I encourage you, allow your heart to breathe take a walk outside, spend time with your family, watch happy movies, read a good book, get in church, allow your heart to be encouraged, Uh, get in God's Word, Uh, study it, allow it to come alive on the inside of you, find hope. Um, You know, the Word tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength, and you need strength for this journey. Do not allow your lives to be overwhelmed by the emotion on the inside of your heart, by the thoughts because of the situation that's taken place. And listen, let me just tell you this. If there's anything I can encourage your heart with, it's going to be this right here. You must understand that the people who are in authority and power right now, they do not care about you. You say, Brian, that's not encouraging. No, you need to understand this. If you understand that they do not care about you, it allows you to not worry about if you're not honored, respect, or given the dignity you normally would acquire um, of those who do care about you. You must understand that every nation goes through these trials and tribulations. It's just our time in history. It's just where we are. And so set it in your heart that you're not going to quit. You're not going to turn back. You're not going to capitulate. You're not going to complain about what's taken place. Listen, I don't want to hear any more complaining. You're in the United States military. We do not complain when things get hard. It's hard right now. I understand. They're not treating you with respect. They're not honoring your profession. And that's okay. You need to accept the fact of where we are in history. Now, are you going to cry about it? Are you going to stand up and have strength inside your heart and say, I'm going to walk this walk. I'm going to take one day at a time. And I'm going to believe that one day, whether it's next week or six months from now, we will have justice in our lives. So be encouraged. Uh, Put yourself in a position to be in a mind of encouragement at all times. And don't focus on what may or may not even happen six six months from now. So with that, God bless you.
0: Brian, thank you so much. I needed to hear that. (laughs) <laughs> no, that, that was for me I, I hope everyone from the audience uh, it takes the, the, away from that uh, as much as I did because personally like yeah and uh, one thing I also want to comment on because recently um, Dr. Zelenko just passed away and he was a great yes, he was a great warrior for God a warrior for the truth and it's a sad day that he has left this earth but I'm sure that he has been welcomed in heaven by his father with the words well done good and faithful servant now these trials and tribulations we go through today they're a crucible that make us pure they they're the refining fire and it's hard this is not a war that's fought with with bullets this is a war that's fought legally and in the spiritual realm and remember this is this is the gym we are in the gym right now we're lifting hard we're lifting heavy and we're getting stronger for it so keep fighting keep keep going and that's not a that's not a not a Um, violent fight that is a legal fight that's mostly a mental fight to keep yourself in the game so that you resist what you don't want to do. Yes. (laughs) And together, we can all make courage more contagious than fear.